This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, City of Toronto staff recommended the renaming of Dundas Street, and the mayor immediately got behind that recommendation. Of course, there are two issues here. Uh, First, the reasons why this should be done, and then the practicalities, which involve changing tens of thousands of street signs and addresses at a cost of about $6 million. Now, the staff report says there are at least another 60 street names in Toronto that are candidates for removal, including about 12 named after slave owners. So, uh, and we will get to your calls, but right now I'm joined by Cheryl Blackman, who is the Interim General Manager of Economic Development and Culture for the City of Toronto. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby, and thank you for having me on. Well, uh, city staff prepared a fairly extensive report. Give us an idea of what did you look at uh, before you came up with this recommendation? So thank you for your question. When the city staff team got together to look at the preparation for this report, we considered the background and the history of Henry Dundas, who scholars have concluded played an instrumental role in delaying the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, causing more than a half a million more black people to be enslaved in the British Empire. We also looked at the assets, uh, city assets named after Henry Dundas. Um, And there are some 730 street signs that need to be considered the, the arteries that loop into uh, Dundas Street along the highway, subways, uh, Young Dundas Square. We looked at commemoration. We looked at uh, you know, the impacts on business and residents and the ways that we could mitigate that. So we did really provide a fulsome review of uh, more than 400 case studies of, of history to, to really understand who Henry Dundas is and to be thoughtful in our approach to contemplating this question about, you know, how we manage this issue um, and, and move ourselves forward. Okay. Uh, so on on the bad side of the ledger, he, he delayed the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Now, and, and here, this is, this is interesting to me because, you know, a lot of people talk about erasing history. And, and I have to admit, I'm usually interested in history. I never once was motivated to look up and see who Dundas was, was uh, you know, the person that that street that's ubiquitous, basically, uh, was named after. Now, he was a Scottish lawyer appointed as minister and first Viscount Melville under the British administration of Canada in the late 1700s. Now, I, you know, um, I've, I've also seen criticism that he didn't really have that much to do with our history. So, uh, you know, as far as you know, why did he get all this uh, real estate named after him? So I think, you know, ultimately what, we've, what we're learning from our, re- our review of, the, of Henry Dundas is, you know, a, a couple of things. And first, I think the question that you asked about erasure, um, you know, we, we really do understand that renaming, re- removal, reinter- re- reinterpretation and, and Real and revocation of a name, these steps do not necessarily erase history. Um, there are really uh, deep opportunities that exist to not only remember and celebrate and honor uh, a person in, in, in public. And so we're contemplating all of those elements as we think about the next steps. Uh, in terms of the you know, uh, story of Henry Dundas, we are aware that Henry Dundas was a very powerful man. We are aware of the relationships between uh, Simcoe you know, wanting to honor Henry Dundas and to position that his name on the street. Um, but we, we do think that, you know, this idea of history being erased is something that we are not going to be um, encouraging. We're, we're certainly not trying to erase history through the work that we're doing. We do have uh, a desire to have conversation about the history of Henry Dundas and any other um, historic figure that is named um, with a street. But certainly we do want to make sure that we are being respectful to these ideas of 
really thinking about who we are deciding to remember, celebrate, and honor in public, and tying that to some of the sentiment that we're hearing, in particular from Black and Indigenous communities who are deeply affected by this history. Okay, let's uh, just, uh, before we wrap things up, tackle the practicality. So uh, your estimate that uh, more than 97,000 residents and 4,500 businesses will be effective. It will cost uh, between 5 and $6.3 million. Uh, we also have uh, TTC assets that will be affected. So I guess the question is, is it, is it worth it? Um, is it worth it? I think that's an understandable question, but certainly from the point of view of city staff, we really do understand that we've made a commitment to healing and taking action to address anti-Black racism, racism against Indigenous peoples, to combat anti-Semitism, um, to really just be present in seeking equity um, with our colleagues and, and fellow Torontonians. So we made commitments through our 2017 Toronto Action Plan to confront anti-Black racism, the 2010 Statement of Commitment to Aboriginal Communities. So from the point of view of living up to our city motto, diversity, our strengths, we truly believe that you know this is a step that is inclusive and progressive and is something that we, we value moving forward with. Okay, Cheryl Blackman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye for now. We are taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to two people who are on opposite sides of this debate. And I will also uh, take some of your calls. So uh, we'll see you on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The push to rename Dundas Street comes after a petition with nearly 14,000 signatures asked for the street to be renamed. Lahid is the man behind that campaign. He is the founder of the campaign to rename Dundas Street. And Anthony Fury is a columnist at the Toronto Sun, and he is opposed to the ideas. And I will be taking some of your calls. Andrew and Anthony, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Thanks so much for having us on today. Okay. Andrew, what made you start this campaign? Well, I mean, the inspiration behind Rename Dundas really comes from uh, last summer's Black Lives Matter uh, protests and movement um, that that really found a re-energization following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. in, in my personal life, uh, you know, I'm a practicing uh, and a, uh, um, an academic whose interests are operate around ideas of memory, place, community, and how we represent those things. And when I was following the protests last summer, I happened to learn uh, whilst reading about the Edward Colston statue being thrown into the harbour in Bristol in the United Kingdom, uh, in one line of the article, it mentions uh, a controversy around the Melville Monument uh, dedicated to Henry Dundas in Edinburgh, Scotland. Now, from my previous work, I was aware that that Henry Dundas was the same Henry Dundas for whom Dundas Street here in Toronto was named. And I thought, if Edinburgh is having that conversation, we really ought to be, too. Uh Anthony Fury, uh, you know, one question that I have about Dundas is, you know, did he deserve to get all this real estate named after him in the first in the first place? I mean, regardless of the bad things he was involved with. Yeah, that's a very good question. And we find that with a lot of our streets and facilities that have been named, uh, particularly much longer ago. I think more recently, we have a connection, a more direct connection to the people who our places are named after. But a lot of times it's uh, it's someone with connections back to England who goes, okay, I'm going to name this after this guy who died in 1811 and who uh, a lot of people probably didn't even know that much about here in Canada when it happened. And certainly most people don't know much about this guy right now. Uh, this is a thing that, uh, you know, you really have to go in search of a problem such as this because nobody's talking about Henry Dundas. And uh, Libby, I appreciated the points you made before the break. I heard that segment and 
you know, I'm the same. I'd, I'd like to consider myself fairly well versed in Canadian history, but I gotta say, I didn't know much about this guy uh, either. So all of the people on Dundas Street, all of the hardworking small business owners who are going to have to rewrite uh, all of their menus and you know all of their signage and so forth, and all of the tourists and uh, and the foreign students and so forth who populate the Young and Dundas area. They really don't know much about this, so I really think this is much ado about nothing, and I think we should be putting our resources and our energy towards something that uh, can bring about actually meaningful positive change. Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting take. I'm sort of leaning to the other. I'm thinking it's true. I don't think anybody knew anything about this guy. I, I think, if anything, I probably thought Dundas was just a place name in Scotland that, that you know, immigrants named their, their new place after. Uh, the, I think the good part is that it, it is actually uh, making people look at at the history. But y- you ask a good question: is it is it worth all the grief? So uh, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Clay and Ajax. Hi, Clay. Hi, Libby. I don't think it's worth the grief. Look at the money they're going to spend. That could be spent on housing for the people that need it. I mean, where are we going to stop? We should learn from our mistake. Leave Dundas there and. They explain to the kids who he was. You know, he's notorious notoriety. It's crazy. Like, I mean, I don't know where he's up. Like I say, there's Dundas. They want to change that. And there's another 60 names they're contemplating. They're, they're talking about uh, the, the cost to the uh, homeowners and the business and all that. And what about all the street maps that have to go, they're going to have to be changed? I mean, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. It's, it's, uh, it's six million, Clay, uh, yep. about six million. And, uh, you know, on the other side of it, unfortunately, that's kind of a drop in the bucket in, in the budget of the city of Toronto. Thanks for your call. Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Oh, God, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, that previous caller was absolutely right. Um, I've had this conversation with my son, and where does it stop? Um, let's go find some dirt on Sir George because I'm sure if we dig far enough, we'll find some dirt on him. How about Bathurst? Let's find some dirt on uh, on Bathurst. If we dig far enough back in history, Libby, we can find some dirt on just about anybody. Look at uh, McDonald's. Uh, part of it is this whole thing. Of, we've had this conversation before. I'm in favor of educate, not eradicate. Um, as said, it's, you've got to look at the perspective. Did these people do more good than bad and weigh it against that? Yeah, well, it, I mean, I think in this case, it's a very different, for me anyway, uh, and thanks for your call, Ron, it's a, it's a very different conversation than, than Sir John A. MacDonald, because he was huge in the history of our country. So, but to me, like this guy, like why? I again, like to me, like why was he there in the first place? But uh, Andrew Lougheed, what do you say to people who say, "Hey, it's just not worth the expense and the trouble"? Well, I, I, I think to get back to some of the points that some of the callers had raised and uh, that Anthony had raised as well, um, it's really interesting when we talk about maybe not knowing who Henry Dundas was, what we're really talking about is the way in which monuments in, in our world work. They replicate power structures through forgetting rather than reminding, which is, seems backwards, but that, that is exactly how they, they function. And, you know, when we talk about, well, where does it stop? It should give you some sort of indication of how deep, uh, you know, white supremacy runs in our urban landscape, our, uh, how deep colonial violence, anti-indigenous, anti-black racism runs in our, uh, in our urban environment. When we look and we see, hey, here are 60 names, and there are certainly more than that, I would imagine, um, connected to this. And so it should tell us, the, the problem, and we can't simply just say, oh, we leave it up and we're going to learn from it. Who is the we in that question? Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, um, to leave it up really privileges a, uh, a settler uh, kind of learning experience at the, at the very real um, uh, pain and uh, at the um, expense of Black and Indigenous communities who are forced to confront uh, historical trauma on an ongoing basis. 
uh, through something as simple as perhaps giving directions. And uh, well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, to I, center that in, in that experience. I, I would dare say that in the case of Dundas, there, there are probably a, an equal number of, of black and indigenous people who don't know who the heck this guy was. Let's take a call from Simone in Parkdale. Hi, Simone. Hi there. Yes, I, I'm really incensed to this. I live just a block above Dundas, and uh, it's going to cost way too much money. And this is a this is all that comes from the leftist element in City Hall, and John Tory listens to them every time they say jumpy ass how high. This is going to cost way more, more money. Sixty different names, and as the gentleman earlier said about the maps being changed, it's it's crazy. And first of all, the largest number of blacks in Canada in the '60s, early '60s, was in Nova Scotia. You never had that many blacks, but they're all doing this because of the multicultural um, aspect and people who have worse histories in their countries than ours. Okay. Uh, let's go to Merrick in High Park. Hello, Merrick. Hi, Libby. Yes, it's a pleasure to be again on the way. Um, on the waves. Um, my, I came, you know, from Poland. Yep. I am now senior citizen. So I'm just thinking this is a cultural revolution now going on in Canada. And uh, for the 200 years, probably, the Dundas, city of Dundas is uh, the street, the Dundas. So if we are going to erase 200 years of the history, uh, people were born on, uh, on Dundas or whatever. Everybody knows the, the name of Dundas. But this is like a, but this is, I'm just thinking what is going on like uh, you now in Canada. I was passing by um, yesterday on Queen Street East, close to Roncesvalles, and there was a, in the Virgin Mary a statue, and it was removed because last year somebody cut off the head. The Polish church on the, the St. Stanislav, on the Nissan close to uh, Spadina, was vandalized for two years. The stained glass window is broken even to, today because somebody is doing this. So we have to just look. Black Lives Matter, it comes from the United States. Canada has totally different history. That's why I came to Canada, and this is my choice. And I got, now I'm white, and I've been offended, like, by, like I committed some sins which I, I don't know about, you know? Like, so it's like, what is going on? Okay, like, Marek, thanks for that. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, the one point that Marek made that I would agree with is that I think uh, we are in the midst of, of a big reevaluation of our history. And, uh, you know, um, history is not a static thing. It, things are constantly reevaluated in, in terms of different perspectives. And they say that, you know, history is written by the victors. But yes, we, we are in the midst of that. Uh, Anthony Fury, I, I think that certainly in terms of our audience, they would be agreeing with you. Yeah, I'm really troubled by what we're seeing as this sort of return to a cultural revolution. Uh, we're seeing that in many respects in terms of overturning our history in quite frankly, you know, petty and tedious ways that are really looking for looking for problems and fights and battles that aren't there. I mean, we've already established nobody really knows or cares who Henry Dundas is. And you, you really have to sort of whip people in a froth to get them excited about all of this. It's, it's quite a bizarre make work project when there are actually many other projects out there that we need to make. Uh, productive progress on all these conversations about just the fact it's mainstream to say, oh, should you celebrate Canada Day? I mean, that's something that should just be on some fringe blog or, you know, a couple of yahoos on social media that no one takes seriously. And yet, uh, I know it's being discussed on, on major programs. And, and, and quite frankly, I, we, we need to stop authenticating this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I, I appreciate why we're having this conversation, and I thank you for having me on. But I also just think, should we rename Dundas? It's, it's not even a serious question. I don't think we should be giving it attention. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andrew Lougheed, what do you, what do you say to him? Because again, in this particular case, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that most people along Dundas Street just had no idea ab about who this guy was. I mean, and, and my opinion would be, why did they give him that name in the first place? That doesn't seem right. Well, sure. I mean, just because we don't know something, you know, doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to learn. As you mentioned earlier, Libby, uh, that, you know, 
history is constantly reevaluated. That is the work of a historian. Uh, what they do is to reevaluate and make decisions based on new information. So now we have some new information that we maybe didn't know about Henry Dundas, and this is why we need to take uh, action and, and be responsible and accountable um, for how we are replicating systems of violence uh, and racism in our streetscape. We're celebrating that fact. And, uh, and that no, we're not. We're not doing that at all. That is not what the naming of that street is doing, celebrating racism. Come on. I'm sorry, Anthony, but I- indeed we are. Street names are an honor and a privilege to have a street named after you. If we're not celebrating someone by having a street named after them, what are we doing? Let us take a call from Helen in Mississauga. Hello, Helen. Oh, hello, Libby. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say I'm really saddened by all of this with people wanting to change names of streets. and things. It's all part of the history. Now, I was an immigrant. I came from Scotland in 1957, and I was raised in Toronto. And, you know, the thing was, it, Toronto was beautiful, and it was so mixed, multicultural, and I was raised with everyone, and we didn't care what you were. We didn't care anything. Uh, Helen, let me ask you something. Did you know who Henry Dundas was? Yeah. You did. Okay. No more now. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, even at that, the fact that back in the day, there, I mean, I guess if you had money, you had uh, maids or, or housekeepers or gardeners. Uh, Still today, if you have money, you can get help around the house, for sure. But, you know, I don't, I had a friend, uh, and she was black, and her mom was a maid, um, and she loved her job, she loved the people, the people loved her, the people loved her family. Sorry, how is that relevant to the... No, no, but I'm just saying, in, in, in the cases where, like, the multiculturalism and the names of streets, I think maybe, um, you know, people were happier. Everyone now is so angry. Okay. Thanks for your call. Let's go to uh, Joan in Niagara. Quickly, Joan, we're running out of time. Hi, Libby. Hi. I think with all this nonsense, we should just start giving all the streets numbers. <laughs> and in 50 years' time, they won't be able to complain about it. You know, they, they, they do that in a lot of places, and, and it's actually um, easier to find your way around when streets well, are on I a numbered grid. Of, uh, Alberta, they do that a lot out there. But <laughs> I mean, they, this whole thing is so ridiculous. Okay, anyway, Joan, you know, that is, that is an interesting... <laughs> suggestion. And uh, before we wrap things up here, of course, one of the things that uh, the city staff report says is it has a process for renaming the streets. So uh, I don't know, Anthony, is that a sensible suggestion? Give it a number and be done? Uh, Well, you know, it works in Manhattan. Whenever I go there, I don't take a map. I just walk around because I know how to get there with the numbers. I will say when it comes to renaming, I I do want to talk about more positive things here. I mean, when we're talking about issues with racism, I mean, there are a lot of black Canadians who really should be celebrated uh, more so out there. And and let's when we're talking about new things and new parks and new streets, by all means, I mean, let's let's celebrate these great people. Yeah, but, you know, they're, again, like this guy has a lot of real estate and a lot of these renaming, they, there's a way, there's a Moses Nimer way named after my brother because he started City TV and the first really multicultural one. And these are tiny little spaces, you know, compared to Dundas Street, which is ginormous. Uh, so, Anthony, um, 30 seconds, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think uh, all those callers who said, look, this is a slippery slope in terms of where does it end. I mean, the Henry Dundas thing, it's, it's a real stretch because the questions about Sir John A. Macdonald and others were, were much more present and mainstream. But this one, I mean, we, we really had to reach to find this conversation. So how many more will we reach for? Okay. Andrew uh, Lougheed, uh 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think that these conversations are such a huge reach as, uh, as is presented. Um, there was already a robust discussion happening in Edinburgh at the same time and had been happening for decades. 
Not to mention these calls to address the ways that we remember are not by any stretch of the imagination new. Uh, these are things that Black and Indigenous people have been asking for for decades. And I think, you know, we owe it at this point, especially with the recent events, uh, really underscore the urgency uh, with which we need to act on this. Okay, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Andrew Lahi and Anthony Fury. Thank uh, you. People, I couldn't get to all your calls. I have a hunch this is going to be a big topic on Free For All Friday coming up. So hold that thought. We will get back to it. And that's all the time we have for today. Fight Back with Libby Snymer is produced by Zeev Hadi with technical production by Jordan Chakravarti. And you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And today we're going to talk about women in politics and why is that still a topic in 2021. Yesterday, Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna announced that she won't be running again. And she, unfortunately, has been the poster child for the harassment threats and bullying that women of all political stripes suffer in this country and around the world. She addressed that, though she said it was not the reason she's leaving. Look, I called it out when I thought it was appropriate to call it out. And I think actually I did learn one lesson. I I waited a long time because it kind of bugged me. Um, And I just decided that it wasn't okay. And I decided to say so. And what gave me, what really was amazing is the outpouring from Canadians because they got recognized. It's not okay. Well, and on the positive side, if you can call anything positive related to the horrific building collapse in Miami, the mayor of Miami-Dade, Danielle Levine-Cava, has emerged as the lead public official who has taken charge of communicating and trying to comfort the families. And I don't think I've seen a woman in that role in North America before. And there's also been analysis that advanced the idea that women-led countries have done better through the pandemic. Let me give the numbers out again in case you have something to say about it. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and former MPP for Mississauga South. Karen Stintz is away this week, and our guest panelist is Jane Tabor, Director of Communications to the Premier of Nova Scotia, Ian Rankin. Jane, of course, is a recovering journalist who covered politics for many years for the Globe and Mail, the Ottawa Citizen before that, and she has always had a special interest in women in politics. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Let us begin with Jane. Hi, Jane. Uh, What did you make of uh, Catherine McKenna's announcement? Um, I thought, first of all, congratulations to her. She did a a great job, I think, on the federal stage and and really representing uh, or trying to tackle climate change for us. And and kudos to her. And what I liked what she said, you know, really resonated with with me, Libby, about the fact that like it wasn't okay that that, about what happened and that she waited too long. You and I started covering the Hill in the mid eighties, uh, <laughs> the late eighties, twelve eighty six. I started. I, yeah. You weren't far after me then. Um, and you know, I would. We, we, there was no social media then, but even then, there were a few women, and the women that we saw there were always called out uh, for their their high pitched voices, for what they wore, how they looked. There was a double standard, and that double standard still exists. And one of the things that I always regretted when I was uh, covering the Hill is that I didn't spend more time supporting those women in in calling out some of some of those issues and even as a as a female journalist and I don't know if, you, if I'm sure it probably happened to you that we were we were under a little bit of a, of a spotlight ourselves because we looked a little bit different 
covering Parliament Hill. And so I had trolls, even back before social media. Uh, and I wish that I had been a little bit stronger in putting my foot down and saying, hey, this is this is just not okay. We're, we're just as good as everybody else. And as you said at the very beginning, we're even better at leading. Well, yeah. And uh, what I recall from that time, though, that, you know, I am nobody's baby, Sheila Copps. Yes, but yes. you know what? There, there is a far cry from that to death threats where Catherine McKenna needed, she needed protection for herself and for her family. And, you know, she said, um, it's important to have diversity. It's important to have women running. But, but Charles Sousa, I, I'm sure that she thought, hey, I am just, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I, I think Catherine did a fantastic job. And like too many in politics, not just women, there always are haters out there and there are trolls and there are, there are threats. But nothing seems to be uh, as worse as it is for women. I'm thinking about Catherine. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. Kathleen Wynne. I'm thinking about others that I've seen that I've been exposed to just a, a, a barrage of, of, of uh, excessive and cruelty through social media. Conservative women private. as well. In Alberta, all, all stripes, all stripes. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, it's just all women who seems to be engaged. But to your point, there have been extraordinary women in Canada who have been true leaders amidst tra- tragedies. Just as it's happening in Miami. I mean, Hazel McCallion, mm. she became famous when the derailment happened in Mississauga. She stepped up. She spoke plainly. She stood fast. She was very direct, disciplined, and consistent in her approach. And she wasn't there to prove herself as anything more than a leader amongst and amidst the situation of the tragedy. And I think that's what stands her out among all others, because she wasn't, her measure of influence wasn't just that point in time. It's over duration of time. And just like men, men and women, you know, we're not all successful. Uh, but those that are, regardless of gender, are are there because of that, that degree of consistency. But some of the women that I've come across in politics are extraordinary. Uh, and unfortunately, I they have had to deal with more social media bashing than I ever had to. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up Hazel McCallion. It was obviously a very different time then. And, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think that she is celebrated for traits that might be considered masculine. And again, John, I mean, it seems that in recent years and with social media, there's just been a huge escalation of this to the point of it becoming dangerous for women. Well, it has been. And, and, you know, there was a couple of things that Jane said, and good to have Jane on the program. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things. That, and even uh, though you're at number two liberals to one conservative today. Well, listen, I, I, I listen. I can, I can handle Charles and Jane, but it's about that limit. I can't do any more. I think at this stage. <laughs> um, but no, but I think that, that Jane mentioned something that was really important, which which was that today versus days uh, of of yesteryear, or you know, many years ago, or decades ago, when when social media wasn't around. You know, it's not to say that it was any any worse or any better back then or, or now. But I remember when I was a youth in politics, I supported Kim Campbell when she ran yeah. for uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party uh, and won and became the Prime Minister. And I remember the leadership time. You know, this is back then. We're, we're talking there was no social media, but even then they were criticizing, um, you know, Kim with, with how she dressed or how she looked, and and you know things that you just wouldn't ever expect anybody to criticize a, a male leader or a male politician. And and that was back then. And now, you know, now under the guise of of anonymous, you know, people who are are tweeting and trolls and stuff that that you can sort of say things much more vicious. Uh, and not get not be accountable for it. It becomes even more uh, crazy. And and I do. And I also want to add my congratulations to Catherine and and the work that that um, uh, that she has done. Uh, you know, as minister. And and you know, I know she's not from my party, but but I tell you that you know, I, I applaud any 
women who get to the politics, who uh, are strong and have to withstand all this. And I give her a lot of credit for being able to call it out as she did, because it'll be people like that that will absolutely in- encourage other women who are seeing that and may be discouraged from politics. But they're saying, well, look, there's other women who have, su- who have, who have gone through this, survived it, fought back. Uh, and maybe I will be w- the the way that you know I'll be like that and, and get into politics because I know that every party and, and, and I say that about my party both federally and provincially, every party uh, tries to do their best to encourage more women to become because you know um, it, it just makes for better cabinets, makes for better caucus, makes for better discussions, and it's something that I think that it, it's it's unheard of that that we're seeing the kind of visceral reaction we're seeing to some uh, the politicians but the women in general of, of all political stripes uh, yeah i mean jane but you know i'm sure that there are a lot of people who are thinking about it and thinking you know i just don't need that well exactly but charles might might be able to answer that as well because i'm, I'm working for a, a male premier and so i see some of the stuff that comes in here now in, in our office and uh, we're here in halifax uh, across from the legislature, and I sort of think, hmm, I don't know if I'd want that either. I mean, politics is a tough business. It really is. But as I said, there really is a, a double standard for, for women. And it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to, if, if we even look look back uh, in 1993, 1994, I remember doing a documentary about women in politics, and a lot of those women were under the gun and under that uh, that double standard, and yet they told me that they would still get involved in politics, even though it was harder for them to raise money, it was harder for them to, uh, to form the networks that, that men can, that, that, that can uh, put together to be able to support them for a nomination race, for instance. Um, even though, against all of those odds, they still really like that public service, and they would get back into it. So I thought that was really interesting. It takes a tough person to put yourself out there. You know, Charles, I admire you for doing that to go out and, and get yourself elected. Uh, and so with Catherine McKenna, uh, she, she took it one step farther and really challenged uh, some of the people who were taking pot shots at her. And I can remember that she challenged rebel media. They were calling her climate change Barbie because of her, you know, blonde hair. And they obviously um, had issues with uh, the whole climate change and the science was, around that. Wasn't that an MP who came up with that moniker first? Well, I, I don't remember. Yeah, I, I think remember, it was. I, it, it could have been. And I just remember a press conference where she said, hey, listen, if you're going to call me, call me that, you are going to discourage young girls uh, from getting into politics. And, and she really took them on. And I thought, way to go. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we need to, we need to hear more. It's, it's too bad that she had to do that. Unfortunate. But still, um, she did it. That takes a lot of courage. And uh, I just really, really admire her for that. Uh, I'd like to um, move over to the, first of all, you know what, before we talk about the positive aspects and and watching other women uh, emerge as the leaders in crisis, uh, the the big political question, of course, is, is Mark Carney going to run in her riding and is is that uh, is is he really that much of a star because I'm I'm kind of harking back a little bit to Michael Ignatieff I see similarities there somehow uh Charles Well that's certainly the rumor and we'll have to see how it all plays out um I you know having gone through politics and we all want to sort of take a, an easier road to get through, <laughs> but nothing beats going through the challenges and overcoming those obstacles and building a team and having those networks and those loyalties and, and having soldiers around you and that uh, a camaraderie that builds to get to that point. That gets you sustained over that period of time. And I worry that, it, you know, if they're just handing it to him, I mean, he's obviously a man of some consequence and has a lot of influence already over the world stage and, and in Canada. Uh, so it's a natural thing for him to do it. And they're going to have to do something quickly if there's going to be a quick election. There's a number of varieties that still have to be filled. But um, I, I would say, you know, to some extent, Trudeau himself fought in a difficult riding when he came into politics. And he kind of saw the, the reasons why he had to show himself somewhat like some women in politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have a, a, a woman who's worked with me for the past 16 years. She's extraordinary. She was very young when she started. But I, I have seen this person become ex- as someone of great consequence. And, and 
the infrastructures that were not available to women is only because there haven't been enough women who have had the ability to be in business. It's not politics that's holding them back. It's women in business and women leaders who provide the infrastructure and the monies to provide for those politicians to become leaders. And uh, I see, uh, listen, I'm a very optimistic guy. I find that there are more women leaders happening in Canada, slowly, but they are happening. And I think that's going to make a bigger difference politically as well. Uh, John, uh, back to Mark Carney for a second. Is is this another case of the liberals investing too much hope, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in a guy, uh, he's obviously extremely accomplished, but, you know, he doesn't have much of a common touch, to put it mildly. Well, and I think the, the Liberals have to have to be careful here because they, their track record, track record isn't particularly good when it comes to, to uh, you know, raising the expectations of these star candidates. And, of course, you mentioned Michael Ignatieff, who I, who I know because he ran against me in the, uh, uh, in the election of 2006. Uh, in the Tobago Lakeshore, and it was an example. And, and Charles mentioned, you know, sort of the, the the nomination process that some of these candidates go and, and star candidates. <clears throat> parties often want them to be acclaimed or not have to go through the nomination process, which is, I think, quite frankly, uh, it, you know, uh, does a detriment to them. Because mm-hmm. in the case of Michael Ignatius, in my writing, just just quickly, you know, there was two or three other candidates who were very well qualified who were running for the nomination of the Liberal Party here. Uh, and then when Michael decided that he was going to run in his Obigo Lakeshore, they uh, they worked it so that he was acclaimed. And I'll tell you, it caused a huge amount of, 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 of risk within the Liberal Party in the riding. Uh, and of course, you know, he ended up winning the election, but, but you know, we all know that he didn't do particularly well as leader and, and he's had a short political career. I think with Mark Carney, there's no question that the talent and the brains and, and, and what he brings to this. But I think that, you know, they have to be careful not to baby him so, so much, as I say that politically, uh, in a way that he doesn't get challenged. He doesn't get, because when, when he gets elected, and he may get elected in, in, a, in a safe Ottawa seat like uh, the, the one that Catherine's vacating, you know, then he gets into the rough and tumble of parliament. Uh, that's where, you know, one tests their mettle. Uh, you know, so it's one thing to be uh, to be an academic and, and to, to to be you know bank of, uh, governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of, of England, but but when you get into the House of Commons uh, and you get heckled and you get you know you can't answer your question you can't answer questions, that's where you know so going through a nomination process is something that gets people candidates kind of accustomed to that because there's that thrust and parry there's that that interchange that get candidates need to kind of build a bit of a tough skin so that when they're prepared to go into the into the battle of, of the House of Commons. So they have to be careful with respect to, to that. But I'm not I won't be surprised if Mark doesn't doesn't go in that writing. I think Catherine vacating it is another indication that this Prime Minister is ready to go to an election probably soon. Um, uh, for that for that to happen because obviously they wanted to get all their, their ducks lined up uh, in a row uh, for what I think might be an August September election. Uh, Jane, uh, I'm Mark Carney, I mean, he has come under some criticism and fire as the governor of the Bank of England, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, their press there is uh, is not exactly kind. But exactly. But um, what do you think? Is is this? Uh, I don't know. Is this is it's, this another case of them? You know, imbuing all this hope and whatever into a star candidate. Well, yeah, it's possible. I mean, he, he you're, you're absolutely right, and, and John's right. I mean, he hasn't been tested, and Charles mentioned but nomination battles and those kinds of things and how I- important that is. We saw that with Jean Augustine. In fact, she was she was another person from Etobicoke Lakeshore who was given um, a, the, seat, the nomination by Kretchen uh, back in 93 when he was trying to get more women uh, in his caucus. And as a result of not fighting her nomination battle, she was a terrific MP, but she did have trouble in her constituency. So it just goes to show that you really need those strong roots um, in your constituency to, to really to really uh, prosper as, as an MP. I mean, as, as she was a, a fabulous MP, I thought, but again, she had trouble in the constituency because I think, I believe she did not have to fight a nomination. One other thing about Mark Carty, it's so funny. We talk about Catherine McKenna, how wonderful she is. I noticed that Warren Kinsella was tweeting out, we moved right to Mark Carty. We've moved on from the star woman candidate onto a star male candidate, right? Well, well so you, 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 you are... Partisan liberals are... are uh, 
are uh, lauding her. You know, other people are not necessarily yeah, for her we're sort of politics. White, we're proving yeah. this white. Like, who cares about the women? Let's talk about the star guy who might be who might be coming along. Um, but I, I, you know, way back when. Uh, I, before Trudeau was, was uh, the leader, we were doing stories. I was doing stories in the Globe Bureau about Carney becoming, going for the leadership back even then. So the, he wants it. He wants to get involved in politics. So I bet you he goes, and he's a smart guy, and um, I think he probably could do pretty well. Well, uh, we shall see. And I, again, I, I think uh, everybody is right that this signals that an, another election is close. Um, but let's get back to the other side. I mean, watching the mayor of Miami-Dade, I think, wow. And, uh, you know, in the United States, especially with their polarization, you know, women really uh, come under fire there. We've seen the governor of Michigan. uh, Wow. Uh, You know, there was a plot to kidnap and kill her. It's just uh, but seeing her emerge like that. um, What do you think, John? Well, you know, great. I think it's good news. I mean, I think what I would say, too, though, Libby, is that I've seen a lot of very strong women leaders uh, in the U.S., in particular because of the pandemic and and sort of certainly the the social injustice that's been happening. And and since then, in in Black Lives Matter, a lot of uh, big city mayors. Uh, one of the, their, their chief spokespeople have been, you know, the women mayors who have really made a name for themselves and have gone out there and, uh, and, and given out strong messages, uh, you know, be it, be it during the COVID period or be it during the, during the social injustice period or what have you. But there's been a lot of, of strong women uh, out there. And I, I would say even in Canada, if you look at the, the times of the, of the pandemic, you've got Dr. Teresa Tam. A lot of the health officials uh, across Canada are women who have who've been out there and, and, and speaking uh, and leading the discussions and leading the uh, the, uh, the explanation of what's going on in their respective jurisdictions. Uh, and also, you know, you mentioned uh, Hazel McCallion, but, you know, my good friend and, and our good friend, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, has been a, a steadfast, you know, uh, uh, leader in, in her community and beyond uh, during the pandemic as well. So yet another example of, of really strong women who are out there uh, giving out the messages. And I think that's a really positive sign. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, there's a, a different kind of order of, of magnitude when somebody is emerging like that at such a difficult time. Um, I don't know, it just uh, strikes me that way. Jane? Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, it really, she, she has really risen to the occasion. I do believe that, you know, women leaders, and you, and you referenced Libby off the top too about uh, the pandemic, uh, and there were some, you know, leaders like Angela Merkel in Germany where things were going well, uh, in that first, uh, those first initial uh, stages of the pandemic, and we were seeing, uh, women, the women who were running countries actually doing very well. It, there's a more collaborative approach, I have to say, with women. I mean, Charles, you worked for, uh, Kathleen Wynne for, for a while. While I don't, I don't know if you saw that collaboration, but uh, but that's what I believe that uh, that women like will, will look for all different sides of the of the of the story and and weigh those. They don't uh, jump into things as as quickly maybe as as men may. So I find that they they don't complicate things. They're very practical and common sense, and I think that's why we are seeing uh, these women emerge. Uh, the Miami mayor uh, John referenced some uh, other mayors, Bonnie Crombie as well. So I think that's the reason for that. Well, well, it's interesting in. Terms- in terms of the pandemic, so uh, the leader of Taiwan is a woman, and that they had just about the best response in the mm-hmm. world. I think there are other reasons for that. Um, I think partly because they are always under threat from China and don't believe a word that comes out of there. Uh, but uh, the theories are, and I think you hit on it, Jane, that women are more likely to consult more widely and and take advice from outside their circle and also perhaps uh, are more risk averse. I mean, I don't know if this is a little bit too out there, but, uh, you know, are, are, don't hesitate to show traits that would be considered not masculine, like not strong, just saying, okay, we see a threat. We're going to shut it down. Like we, you know, as uh, an abundance of caution, Uh, would you agree, Charles, that women are more likely to do that? Uh, Absolutely. I I was a a co-chair for women on boards for five years Mm -hmm. Uh, with, with, with the only, uh, uh, issue was to try to outperform those boards. 
And that gender equity and the critical thinking, uh, the degree at which they brought diversity to the board, outperformed, in the end, uh, the, the results of that company. But uh, to Jane's point, um, and to what you're saying, Libby, individuals that I've worked for, Kathleen Wynne being one of them, is that they're very smart. They, are, they, they make informed decisions. They do seek out support. They do put people around to provide assistance. And that informed decision is what makes them leaders. It's what makes them strong. And in, in the end, it's what builds trust and respect. Um, because the, I remember around the cabinet table, uh, the premier, Kathleen Wynne, knew those files oftentimes much better than the ministers themselves because she dug deep into the issues. And I always admired that in her. Unfortunately, social media, cyberbullying, be it what it may, they've painted Kathleen Wynne as someone who was uninformed and lacked mm. trust. And once you lose that in the public eye, you're done. And that was very difficult for Kathleen Wynne to bring back. And I know deep down there was some sincerity. She was an authentic individual who got branded. And unfortunately, part of it was because of her gender and her sexuality, and that infuriated me. And it's something that is so sinister out there in the social media that annoys me to no end because we're all seeking heroes. We're all looking for that leader to help us through these tough times. And people like her and other women that I've come to know have degree, a great degree of influence because of their ability to, to find and seek support and become informed before they make a decision. There's some critical thinking that happens, and not all men do it. There's too much shooting from the hip, and I see today's premier oftentimes just taking a gut shot at what's happening, and and we have to be a little bit more pragmatic. Okay, well, and you know what? He gets a a lot of uh, kudos and support when when he uh, takes some of those shooting from the hip because it comes across and likely is authentic. But uh, that's a whole other subject. John, we're running out of time. What would you like to leave us with? Well, other than uh, I think that, you know, we could just continue sort of the, the, the good news and the good progress that this the province and Canada is making with respect to vaccines. I think that's uh, uh, a healthy uh, thing for all of us. And I think we're going to hopefully see a bit more of the lessening of the restrictions in, in, in short order. So that's all good news for everyone. Jane, last word to you. Well, just about women in politics. If there are any women out there who are listening, and I'm sure there are, get involved. I mean, I'm too chicken. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, I, I do encourage it, but it's, it, it's from what I've seen, that, that public Are you thinking about it, Jane? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm too old make now, an but... announcement right here. <laughs> are you kidding me? Jane and Libby, you're both leaders in your own right. You guys should be yeah. proud of what you've done. <laughs> okay, but I just, just get out there. I mean, I just, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a, a great occupation and a great, a great career. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Souza, and Jane Tabor. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Libby. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the proposal to rename Dundas Street. Very controversial when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.